Hello, my name is Natalia Fedorchuk, and I am a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. I had the privilege of working on this year's Priestley Award celebration lecture, opening the infrared treasure chest with the James Webb Space Telescope, and I am here today with Dr. John C. Mather, senior astrophysicist and senior project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Welcome, Dr. Mather. Thank you. Happy to be here with you. I just wanted to start off by asking, for those listening who may not be familiar, would you maybe be able to go a little more into detail on the role that you played building and launching the James Webb Space Telescope? Sure. Well, maybe not everybody knows what the telescope itself is. Right. The telescope is a gigantic telescope in space, mm -hmm. uh, much bigger than the Hubble Space Telescope, and extending the science that the Hubble did into farther away in space, farther back in time, in places that you can't see with the Hubble because they're hidden because of dust in space and things like that. So we launched it on Christmas morning, 2021, and it's been working perfectly ever since, and we are so thrilled with that. So uh, what are we trying to do with it? We're trying to look at every, basically every step that happened to the universe from the after the expansion and the Big Bang, what we call the Big Bang, to the formation of stars, galaxies, planets, and people. So how did that all happen? We'd like to know. So uh, my job has been to take this desire, which scientists had even before I turned up on the project, to uh, work with engineering teams and science teams to say, well, exactly how are we going to do this? What exactly we have to build to measure exactly what? And then make a plan with everybody. So it's a very interactive thing that I do. Uh, talk to people all the time. And then regarding the James Webb Space Telescope, other than looking into human creation, the universe creation, overall goals in terms of how we can plan to receive images, what NASA has as a goal to image specifically? Okay, well we outlined uh, four major territories to cover. Uh, one is what happened after the Big Bang, the first objects to grow, which could be stars, could be galaxies, could be black holes. Mm -hmm. A lot of possibilities and we're just beginning to understand that. Uh, we are getting some surprises that the first galaxies did not grow the way we thought. They grew much faster, bigger, brighter, hotter. And so we don't know what, why we were wrong before, uh, but we're working on that one. Then how do the galaxies like the Milky Way grow? The Milky Way might have been assembled out of thousands of little bits. So you can't, of course, see that happening now, but you can see what were galaxies like uh, billions of years ago. What were, the, what, our, what were our ancestors like? Um, so um, that's one of the projects. How are stars being born today? So we have a new tool because um, this always happens now inside dusty gas clouds in space. So they're opaque uh, because of the dust. Uh, and so the Webb telescope gives us the opportunity to see inside because the infrared light that we can pick up um, can go around dust grains instead of bouncing off. So that gives us access to this stellar nursery. Wow. And so we uh, are just beginning to understand what is going on in there, but for the moment we know the pictures are beautiful. <laughs> and they are places where this wonderful combination of uh, new stars and old stars and eruptions and winds blowing through space at immense speeds. So um, that's pretty. And then, of course, how about the planets? We look at the planets here in, the own, in our own solar system, everything from Mars on out we can see. Um, we see that our giant planets all have rings, mm -hmm. which is a lovely surprise. Um, we want to know how did they work together to make conditions here on Earth. We're not pointing the telescope back at Earth, but we're putting it at the big boys in the solar system, the big planets out there that influenced our own history. So, and then of course, what about planets around other stars? 
and we have a list of about 60 some that we are observing in our first year of operations. Um, we observe them uh, by what we call the transit technique. When a planet goes in front of a star, it can block the starlight for a little bit, and we say, oh, I saw something. Uh, if it does it over and over again on a regular basis, we say, now we know what is the period of the orbit. How long does it take to go around? Um, and then we look to say, well, is there any sign that some of the light goes through the atmosphere of the planet on the way to our telescope? And the answer is yes. Some big planets, usually yes. Um, there's an atmosphere. Uh, small planets, not yet. We don't know of any small Earth-sized planets that have an atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So, wide open topic. Mm -hmm. yeah. In regards to larger planets being the only planets that have atmospheres, does that mean that those planets would not be inhabitable or have astrobiology potential because they're so large? Possibly. Uh, of course, we don't expect to see liquid water anywhere on Jupiter or Saturn mm -hmm. and or on planets that are like them and uh, other around other stars. Mm -hmm. uh, we think liquid water might be the requirement for life. Right. So it's a guess, but it's a pretty good guess, I think. Right. In terms of the long-term outlook for the James Webb Space Telescope and NASA's long-term plans for the project, how long does NASA predict that the James Webb Space Telescope will be able to last in space and take images? We're expecting 20 years at least, mm -hmm. which is a lot more than we dared to hope for at the beginning. So we're really pleased with that. Uh, we got a perfect launch from the European rocket. It's called the Ariane 5 rocket. Mm -hmm. So it went directly where we wanted to go didn't have to spend any fuel to change the orbit. So that was great. Uh, we need fuel uh, to run the observatory from time to time. We have as much as we could possibly have, so 20 years is what we're hoping for. I recall from your talk you were mentioning that five years turned into 20. Mm -hmm. So what was it that contributed to that? Ah, well, number one, we required five. Mm -hmm. Okay, prove to us that we can at least obtain five. Mm -hmm. So. That means because you don't know what's going to happen, you launch with fuel what should last for 10. Okay. And then you get lucky and it right. lasts for 20. What are some discoveries that the James Webb Space Telescope may have the potential to make now that it is in its final position, specifically in regards to the second Lagrange point? Yeah. So the orbit that we're in is called the Lagrange point because it keeps the observatory near the Earth but not too close. Mm -hmm. So it's about a million miles away, and so from that spot we can protect the telescope from the heat of the sun, the earth, and the moon, and the telescope will be cold. So it's just a good place for the telescope. Now, does it affect the uh, what we can do scientifically? Not very much. It's just a good place to put the telescope. But yes, we hope to see the first objects all the way to the, the current day planets nearby, mm -hmm. um, all from this one perspective point. Mm -hmm. Are there any preparations that the web team have made for the telescope once it does begin to break down or stop working 20 years from now? Yeah, we do know what we're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. uh, we're supposed to make sure the tel telescope doesn't come back and hit us. Right. So it's, uh, the orbit is unstable, mm -hmm. and it would be very unlikely for it to come back, but we want to make sure that that last time we post the rocket jets, it heads in the right direction. In working through and completing this project, what were some of the greatest difficulties that you faced and your team faced, and then what were some solutions that were proposed to correct these difficulties? Uh, when we started, we knew we did not know how to build it. So we knew what we needed to invent. We made a list of 10 things we had to invent. Um, one of the obvious ones was how do you make a big mirror? Mm -hmm. uh, the mirror it needs to be bigger than the rocket. Mm -hmm. So that means something that has to fold up and then be adjusted after it's launched into space. Uh, 
the folded mirror has to become like a perfect one that you would have had mm -hmm. if you could. Then we had to, how do you make the mirrors? We decided to make them out of beryllium, which is very unusual, but it has the right properties of keeping its correct shape when it's cold, uh, and it's also extremely lightweight. Mm -hmm. So that was another issue because the telescope wants to be, uh, it needs to be able to fit into the rocket you can buy. And nevertheless, we have to put it a million miles into space. So you can't solve your problems just by making something stiffer and heavier. You have to make something extremely light. So the mirrors are made out of this beryllium, which is only two millimeters thick. Mm -hmm. And well, that's kind of interesting and fragile. And how do you ever make something that thin so precise? Mm -hmm. So that's a corporate trade secret. I do not know how they do that. <laughs> Then we had to have better detectors. You know, in your telephone or your camera, you have digital image devices, detectors, and we have uh, different ones that are able to pick up infrared light. Mm -hmm. So we needed to have ones that are bigger and better than we ever had before. Mm -hmm. So, okay, world, tell us that you can do this. Send us a proposal. Uh, prove to us that we can get these detectors, and then we'll build a telescope around them mm -hmm. to do that. Interesting. So will there be any kind of maintenance? Mm. For this telescope, there's no maintenance planned. Okay. There's nothing easy to access. Okay. Um, people used to say, well, could you refill it with more fuel? Right. But it doesn't look like we really need to think about that because okay. by the time it's 20 years old, uh, people will want the next telescope. In terms of concluding questions, what are some of NASA's long-term goals? I know that you mentioned some long-term goals that you have, but maybe NASA's long-term goals for upcoming projects, not only in telescopes, but just general observations. And then how does the James Webb Space Telescope and its findings fit into or maybe alter those Okay, plans? well, that's a huge territory. <laughs> um, NASA has four main scientific areas mm. plus human spaceflight. Mm. Um, so we want to do all of them. We look down at the Earth from above to say, uh, how are we doing? What's happening with the air and the water? and the minerals and the, and the weather and the climate. So we do that as part of our worldwide effort to make sure we're safe in the future. Um, we have solar system exploration. We send probes to all the planets we can reach right. because even though we can build you a telescope, it's a whole lot better if you can go closer with a robot. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially for Mars, we're planning to bring back some rocks. So look inside, see what do they tell us about the possibility of life or at least the geological history. Um, that's pretty tricky, but we are already able to bring back pieces of comets and asteroids because it's the rockets are easier. Right. We look at the sun. We have a whole territory called heliophysics, which deals with how does the sun work and how about all the stuff that it sends out that passes the Earth. You know, we have solar storms that come at us and once in a while bother us. Mm -hmm. So there are practical reasons to go at that one. Then there's, of course, the astrophysics that I'm part of, where we, how does everything in the whole universe work from the first things to local? Mm -hmm. um, and so in every area, there's a plan for what do we need to do next. Right. Um, the, uh, the human exploration is different from all the others because it's so hard to do that we basically can only do one thing at a time. Right. So instead of where uh, we have like hundred different science projects that once we got either you're going to the moon or you're going to Mars but not both at the same time. So right now I guess everyone sees that we're planning to go to the moon mm -hmm. um, and we've decided more or less how to do that. Uh, we've flown already once a robotic version around the moon. Um, the next one is to have the robotic version upgraded with uh, a, the uh, SpaceX spaceship, Starship, 
involved, and then eventually land on the moon with all of that stuff, and real people with walking around on the moon. Right. Uh, not only the next man on the moon, but the first woman on the moon. Yeah. People are looking forward to that. Um, so then Mars. Mars is a whole lot harder. Mm -hmm. um, we, can pe we could, in principle, get to Mars with the technology we can imagine today. Mm -hmm. We do not have the ability to bring you home. Right. So at the moment, we would have to just send you food for a long time. Right. So some people would go anyway, but uh, that means this is a harder problem. Right. Is that because of fuel to launch home? Okay. Yes. It is. We cannot get enough fuel to the surface of Mars mm -hmm. to be able to come home from Mars. How do you see the field of, in your time at NASA, but in general with the findings of the Webb Telescope, the field of astrobiology kind of expanding? Okay, good question. Astrobiology did not exist when I was a young person. Uh, it was, in a way, caused by NASA. The head of NASA said, we want to study this, and he started saying, here's some money. Tell us what you would do if you could. Mm -hmm. So now there are professional journals about astrobiology, and we have some attempts to discover things about Mars. Right. We had a meteorite that we found in Antarctica that at least some people believed quite strongly showed signs of life. Well, now we still argue about it a lot, but the obviously next step is go find some more of those and also go to Mars and bring something home. Mm -hmm. So now it's a real subject. Right. What's your perspective on the technological direction of space research with new technological advancements coming out like AI? Oh, AI, that is the big difference, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, AI is turning out to be really, really useful to many people on very practical tasks that we have to do every day. I don't think we're ready to replace ourselves on spaceships with how. <laughs> 2001 is not happening, uh, not anytime soon, but that's not the same as never. Mm -hmm. So I think in a very long term we will have something like how mm -hmm. on a spaceship and, and how will go wherever he wants to go. Right. Uh, he won't need people to go with him. So that'll be interesting. I don't know what we're going to do then. Right. And as AI develops and becomes stronger of a field with less error, do you see processes and projects being sped up a little bit by like maybe calculations being some, Yeah, some okay. things can go a lot faster than right. we would just say, okay, chat of some sort, mm -hmm. tell me the answer to this and it might be right. Mm -hmm. uh, right now they're not trustworthy. Yeah. Um, you have to know whether you're getting the right answer, but that's not so unusual. Mm -hmm. You know, if you do any kind of computer calculation, it's probably wrong the first time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have never written a program that got the right answer the first time. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the AI will get better, but it's going to be more like people. No person is trustworthy either at every level. Right. There's no possible way of proving that they know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So you're going to say, well, what, what high school am I going to send my robot to? And we'll have the equivalent of, can this robot pass the final exam of being human enough to get it right and we can trust you to do something. Right. And here we call it you as though it was a person. So we're going to have to develop a way to decide whether to trust what we get. Right. Something I was curious about from your talk, when you talked about money and financing from the government and not having enough money for all the projects that NASA wants to achieve, how have you seen financial support from the government change over time according to whether or not scientific discovery has been a priority to... The American public. Good question. Well, 
I should say that NASA support has been remarkably steady mm -hmm. over the many generations that I've been at NASA. Mm -hmm. I've worked uh, with almost all the NASA administrators we've ever had, except the first couple. Mm -hmm. So that means I came to NASA a long time ago. Um, so it's been pretty steady. Uh, I'm really pleased with that. It's enabled us to do miraculous things. Mm -hmm. Some areas have gone up and down a little bit because once in a while the things that we find out are a little controversial to some people who don't want to hear the answer. You notice that. Um, but that just means to me that it's all the more important that we have to get it right. Mm -hmm. So NASA is not telling you uh, the answer because we want an answer. We're telling, telling you what we saw. Right. So this applies especially to Earth science where people are concerned about the future of humanity. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't know what you're supposed to do about it. Well, we can tell you what we're seeing. Right. So if I ever write another book, it'll be called I Have to Measure. <laughs> um. You mentioned SpaceX. With the privatization of some areas of space travel and the collaboration between private and public like domain, do people at NASA, are they excited about that private aspect or is that? Yeah, uh, SpaceX has taken a different path to making launch vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, so they said they could break the monopoly that the old companies had by having a new approach. Mm -hmm. And it's worked for them. They've mm -hmm. captured a lot of the business. Right. Uh, so they tried things that nobody else would try. Right. And so uh, we're pretty impressed as customers. NASA doesn't build rockets. We mm -hmm. buy them. Either right. we buy the rocket or we buy the service of the rocket. So I think we're all very pleased that the cost has come down, which means that we can try new things mm -hmm. that would have otherwise been too risky to, to launch. Another perspective is just to say, well, most of the space business is commercial anyway from the beginning to the end. Sure. Um, the number of civil servants is very tiny compared with the number of contractors mm -hmm. and compared with the defense business and the commercial business. So NASA's budget sounds like it's big, but it's less than 10% of the worldwide budget. It's more like 5% of the worldwide space budget. Oh, wow. So it we're the part you see because we discover pretty things that make exciting trips and our astronauts are at risk every time we push the button. But most of what you are paying for, you don't even notice because it always works. Right. Your telephone always works. Your GPS always works. And we paid for that, but you didn't notice. Interesting. Once again, on behalf of Clark Forum, thank you so much for sharing your time and your perspective today. Well, thank you for inviting me.